welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're not talking about a single book, not even a career. This week we're talking about a goddamn rain. Tanana Reeve Dew is the queen of black horror fiction, and one of the most respected horror authors of the 21st century. She's written modern classics from her first novel, The Between, to a British fantasy award-winning collection, Ghost Summer, and her magnum opus, so far at least, The Good House. I've seen her writing described as Toni Morrison meets Stephen King, and whilst there is truth to that comparison, her books are more distinctive by far, and that's before we even get to her work in TV and film. And yet, unbelievably, she agreed to spend some time talking to little old me. We cover all sorts of things in the next hour, from whether she's a writer or a film scholar first how she got the guts to start writing about white men with neuroses, to the time she used an Elvis impersonation to get Stephen King to blurb her book. I also got the chance to ask her an important question about diversity in horror. It's a theme that keeps coming up in these interviews, largely because of my own discomfort with just how bloody white the guest list has been so far. Her answer was typically considered and kind, so... If you hear me gushing like a fanboy during this interview, I hope you'll understand why. Tanana Reeve has lived in Florida, in small-town Washington State, and, astonishingly, in Leeds, England. In lieu of any single place to take you this week, let's go to Hollywood, the shiny part of California where Tanana Reeve do, does much of her work, telling tales and helping them get told. Let's talk scared. Tanara Reeve, hi. I am delighted to welcome you to Talking Scared. How are you today? I am excited, happy, thrilled. What with the horror renaissance going on right now, how can I be anything but? In- indeed, yeah, we-, we live in glorious days. Um, wh- where are you speaking to us from? I live in Los Angeles County, so I am in sunny California, Southern California. Right. Normally, I don't get that far west. Normally, most of the writers I speak to seem to be stuck in the Massachusetts area. Um, I don't know why that is. It must be a spooky place. So it's it's nice to speak to some of the Sunshine Coast for a change. How are things over there? have to represent for the West Coast. Well, we've got some fantastic vaccination rates right now. So we're doing great in California. I wish the rest of the world were doing as well. That's the sad thing. Um, it's a privilege to have access to this vaccine. Indeed, there's always a bit of a lag with this podcast where I record it a few weeks before I set it live. So I always think that by the time people hear this, news has obviously moved on. But we're obviously we're recording this in the middle of the the, the, the nightmare that's happening in India right now, yes. um, which literally does look like a horror movie. It, it looks like the pandemic movie we've all seen. It, it's, quite, it's quite frightening and heartbreaking. It really is almost incomprehensible, you know, and it... it threatens to be one of those problems that feels so big that you feel sort of paralyzed and helpless to do anything about it. But one of the things people can do is raise awareness. So that's what we're doing right now. Uh, you brought it up and thank you for doing that. I have a dear friend who whose family is there and yeah, I'm a horror fan and I watch horror that is fictitious, but sometimes I don't have the stomach for reality horror and news footage, as you say, from India does look like reality horror. Yeah, my sister-in-law is Indian and yeah. her extended family are over there too. So we're kind of watching it with bated breath as well. Um, 
I mean, thankfully, the one thing I would say is, as much as I despise the British government, and that, that's no secret to listeners of this podcast, it, it does feel like whether it's through guilt or whether it's through good intentions, the, the UK and the US are at least doing something to try and try and get things, um, get some aid that way. It, it, I feel slightly less ashamed for once. <laughs> well, that's, you know, I noticed that when I was uh, at the University of Leeds, I got my, I know we'll talk about it uh separately, but I, I did study there for nine months and got a, a master's in English literature at the University of Leeds. And one of the first things I noticed watching BBC news as opposed to the news in the States was how much more interest there was in stories from the continent of Africa and from India. And, you know, only later I realized, well, that's because <laughs> those were those were colonies. Um, but yeah. in the United States, we really are so focused just on the U.S. and what's happening in our borders that I'm, I'm grateful that, that any news will get through from anywhere else in the world that we actually pay attention to. It, it, it kind of it does feel like one of the things that may come out of this pandemic, just maybe if we've got hope, is that maybe we might become slightly more globally aware because we have to be, you know, because obviously what's happening in Brazil and what's happening in India, you know, on, on a non-altruistic basis does actually threaten us now. Um, and if, if that brings about a slightly more global worldview, then I think that's one potential sort of silver lining after all this. Well, the true life horror show that this is, is really exposing some aspects of human nature that are very, very dangerous. <laughs> uh, denial being one. Um, like to have information and not be able to process it <laughs> in a way that makes logical sense. And I do ag agree with you that hopefully there will be more global awareness that we are all one. But I just saw a tweet and I live on Twitter I just saw a tweet earlier today uh, with someone complaining about all the uh, people from the U.S. booking their trips to to Europe, you know, now that they feel like they're safe and vaccinated, but not really aware of what the rates are, the COVID rates are in these countries they want to visit. And it's 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 an odd time. It's like we're creating um, sort of a caste system of, you know, the vac people who have access to vaccines and people who don't. And if we don't figure out that this is just going to perpetuate the problem, uh, it's just going to perpetuate the problem. You know, I, I wonder how long it'll take people to wake up to the fact that we share one planet and, you know, a concept of the good for all. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it would. It's been, like I say, it's, it's been an eye opener and we will, we, we will see what it brings. I just, I just hope things work out, you know, in a, I hope things work out in a way that, that promotes kindness more than anything else. I mean, that's such a hippie, new age thing to say. It's such a weak thing to say. But I think kindness has, has become a rare currency in the last sort of 12 months. You know, I agree with you. And I'm cautiously optimistic that with the U.S. taking a, a different political direction, not perfect, but different, that we will see more kindness manifesting in policy and, uh, you know, all kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we're going to get quite deep in this podcast. I mean, I feel like we've started off, you know, a, a certain register and we're going to get deeper. But but let's jump into fiction and, and literature. At least it's a bit of a safe haven from the horror. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to begin, normally on this show, guests have a, an imminent release to promote. 
you're the first of my guests to feature purely because of your standing in the horror landscape. Wow. Well, it's true. I would argue that you are one of the newest members of this kind of inner sanctum of horror writers, you know, people like King and Barker and Ramsey Campbell, you know, who, who actually help shape and define the genre. Wow. And, and when we briefly connected on social media, I, th- I think I posted something about diversity in horror and, and you picked up on that tweet. And I thought, well, I've got to seize on the chance to get you on the show. <laughs> oh, so, that what happened? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so because this isn't anchored to a, a particular book, it's a, it's quite intimidating for me because I have nothing to structure my questions. But it also means that, you know, we can have a more meandering, hopefully insightful conversation. Sure. That said, I have recently caught up with a lot of your work, most notably The Good House and Ghost Summer, which I, I absolutely loved. I, I loved that collection. Uh, so, so those will come up a lot, you know. Great. That's the preamble, the context for this. We're not talking about a specific book here. Um, but, but let's begin. There's a lot I want to ask you and, and so little time. So to begin, your Wikipedia page describes you as being, quote, best known as a film scholar with an expertise in black horror. But I have always been aware of you primarily as a novelist. So to set our stall out here. I'm sorry. I have to interrupt right there because yeah. really that's what it says that I'm yeah, yeah. known as a film scholar. Oh my goodness. Well, that's so funny because I still sort of uh, flinch a little bit when people call me a film scholar because that's not how I see myself. I mean, I do teach at UCLA and I teach a black horror class, but that is interesting. Okay. So like you, I thought I was mostly known <laughs> as a novelist, but I guess not. I'm going to ask the question now because it's provoked a response um, because I was taken aback by it because it it obviously then goes on to list at length all of your books. You know what I mean? So (laughs) (laughs) it it may be the Dean of UCLA who's written it. I don't know. So you, you do consider yourself primarily a writer. Yes. I'm an artist first and everything else has come in the wake of that. So okay, teaching, um, film scholaring, (laughs) (laughs) all of that you know where I think that might have come from and I don't want to jump ahead of your questions but I did notice when I was approached by the producers of the documentary Horror Noir from Shudder which I I believe is running in the UK now Shudder UK yeah I watched it this week I'm so when they approached me I believe it was mostly on the basis of knowing that I was teaching this black horror class at UCLA and I had quite famously had Jordan Peele come surprise my class, which I'm sure we could talk about separately too. So once, and that, and it kind of went viral when he visited the class. So when they were approaching me, they didn't put it this way. And I'm talking about Phil Nobile Jr., um, who's at Fangoria, and um, Ashley Blackwell and um, Kelly uh, Ryan. I I got the feeling that it was more on the basis of me being a scholar than being a horror creator. And in fact, it never came up. The fact that I was an author doesn't come up at all in the documentary. (laughs) I do sneak in a reference to the writer Terry McMillan in the United States, who opened doors for a lot of writers like me, Black women writers in particular, getting just 
attention where publishers were like, oh, well, what else can they write? You know, uh, and horror happened to be one of the things they were willing to try. They were throwing everything against the wall to see if it would stick to use a pasta reference. And I was very lucky to come in during that wave. But, you know, the 90s was a long time ago. <laughs> and also, it's been a while since I published a novel. So my last short story collection, Go Summer, what, what was that, 2013 or 2014? I'm just starting to realize, oh, some people don't know <laughs> that I'm actually a novelist and not just um, a documentary personality, you know, who talks about horror uh, so that's yeah, very interesting. But 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 I think that's it. That the documentary has had such an impact that there may be a growing number of people who know me way more for that than for my previous work. And we're going to change that together. Yes, we are. This is the first step on the on the reclamation <laughs> of your novelistic credentials. So <laughs> so right right for a start. Everything you just said there has, has torn up my plot of questions. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's fine. I'm going to jump into in, into further down the line. Sod it. We'll, we'll just feel our way through it. You mentioned the, the Shudder documentary, so let's let's start there because I actually watched it this week. It's been on my list of things to watch. You know, you know these like to watch lists just get longer and longer and longer. Yes. Just like my to read list gets longer and longer and longer. And then having you on the show finally gave me the, the the allowance to to go and devote my time to your stuff, which I was glad about. So I watched Shudder this week with my wife, who knows nothing about horror, who who hates horror, but, but who think <laughs> who thinks you are, and I hope you don't find this patronizing, the sweetest person in the world. Aw. My wife was just like, she seems so nice. You know your wife is so right. How does that come across? <laughs> I don't know, but she's right. I am pretty nice. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought you were going to be really intimidating, but she was right. So this should have documentary. It, it's fascinating because for a couple of reasons. Uh, for those who don't know, it, it's a, a sort of potted history, a journey through black history via horror cinema as a kind of lens is the, is the way I saw it, really. Yeah. You know, it's really well paced. It's not too deep. It's not, it's inclusive. It, it's, it's a great doc. But I noticed, and I'm glad you brought it up, that you were the only person in the entirety of the documentary to mention literature. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, it, it really, I made a note as you said it, and you mentioned Terry McMillan. You, you compared Terry McMillan to Spike Lee as somebody who in the 90s really broke through in, in bringing black culture into mainstream culture. Yes. It seems to me, and I could be wrong, and I'm framing this entire conversation from a position of relative ignorance, but it, it seems to me that whilst black horror cinema has experienced a mainstream explosion, black horror writing hasn't. Mm. Is that a fair claim or am I, am I missing key texts? I mean, it's a mixed answer to that question. In part, yes. In part, I would say that a lot of black horror writers, including people who were writing from the 90s and even earlier than I was publishing, like uh, Linda D. Addison, uh, who is a, a an author and poet who, you know, when I showed up at my first Horror Writers Association meeting, there she was, the only other Black person there, right? So, But there were people like um, the late L.A. Banks, who uh, wrote a Vampire Huntress series, and Brandon Massey, who did horror, but also with an image of suspense. 
He did a couple of anthologies called Dark Dreams that were all horror short stories. And we really kind of felt like I think that the whole thing was just going to take off. Just like I'm sure the people in Hollywood felt like this whole thing was just about to take off. But instead, it all kind of came to a screeching halt. (laughs) So after the 90s, these directors like Casey Lemons, who did a beautiful film called Eve's Bayou, like Rusty Cundiff who did racism as the monster horror in his film, Tales from the Hood, back in 1995, didn't get the second chances. Rusty Cundiff, in particular, had to use Spike Lee's cultural capital to get that made at all. You know, they were apparently at a party, and that's how that whole thing came up. (laughs) You know, what you're working on kind of conversation. And the next thing you know, boom. Uh, he's got Spike Lee there advocating for him with the studio about some of the more controversial aspects of the movie, which are pretty controversial, you know, uh, mm-hmm. racist politician, which rings so true today still, and police brutality, which is still so much a part of uh, the U.S. conversation. They didn't get the chances. So none of us, I feel like it dried up. It dried up for a while, but now it's like a snowball rolling down a mountain. It's not that I stopped publishing, but a lot of us found that we weren't getting the hardcover and paperback tours, and then you're not getting toured at all, and then you're going longer and longer between contracts, and that kind of thing is happening on the literary side, where on the film side, I think a lot of Black filmmakers were just trying to get their foot in the door any way they could, and a lot of times that meant creating films starring white people, right? So you know, and, and there was no such thing. I I know from pitching, because I've been very, very lucky that since I first started publishing in, I, well, I should mumble when I say this, but in 1995, I have had individual production companies or executives who believed in me very deeply. So I've had my work in and out of option almost continually for that time, at least one thing, at least one thing, there's somebody who reaches me and as a true believer and is willing to fight the good fight, one of my biggest advocates was an American actor named Blair Underwood, who was on a show called L.A. Law. I have no idea if it airs in the U.K., but, uh, but he had a personal option for years. He actually went to Ethiopia to shoot like a concept trailer uh, for my novel, My Soul to Keep, which is about Ethiopian immortals. So he shot footage on horseback. All this beautiful. I mean, just gorgeous. And, and for 10 years made the rounds trying to get it set up. And we had a, an executive, uh, Zola Mashariki, who now is in charge of Audible, I just read. <laughs> uh, but but she was a big believer. But there were just never enough people lined up. It was never the right script, the right time, the right... It's well, And it's a fairly typical story, so it's not like Hollywood was picking on me. But I will say that when I went into those meetings trying to pitch Black Horror... I could get the range of reactions from kind of like literally not understanding what I mean when I say black horror because they hadn't seen any in film themselves or the kind of knee jerk, which a couple will say to your face, do the characters have to be black (laughs) because of the fear and really misperception that Hollywood is still fighting (laughs) that inclusive um, programming loses money. That, that is actually a myth. Uh, but this is, this is a fear. I mean, every executive is afraid for their job. So it's easy to say no. It's risky to say yes. And a lot of us had run into that. 
So both as filmmakers and authors, we were starting to struggle a bit. That's kind of, I have to be quite careful how I say this next bit now in a way, because it, it, I want to be quite clear on what I mean. The reason I asked the question is because I've looked back at the list of authors I've interviewed for this show, and I've approached nearly 40 authors now. And the vast, vast majority of them have been white. Um, I, I spoke to Roman Alam. I spoke to Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. Mm. I think they are the, the, the only writers of colour I've spoken to in 40 episodes. Well, I think by the time they say it's in 38 episodes, but, but you get the point. I would say that's fairly typical of the genre. Um, and the way the genre itself has been presented. And, and it's beginning to shift. Well, in, indeed, but I have to, first of all, admit to some complicity in that because in order to make it successful and to build an audience quickly off the bat, I I went for the big name, well-known writers like yourself. You know, I started with Paul Tremblay, mm. uh, John Langan, you know, people who are kind of household names or at least for horror fans. Right. And because I was looking for those people, I found that I just wasn't coming across writers of colour. Now, I don't for a second think there aren't just as many fantastic writers of colour, but it seems that they don't have the same profile. And therefore, because I was looking for people with a certain profile, I was ne neglecting more diverse voices. And I felt quite guilty about it. And, and I've struggled with it. And, and I'm, I'm actually delighted to say that I'm addressing it because in the next few weeks, I've got Latanya McQueen, I've got Zakaya Delilah Harris, and in the autumn, Cassandra Corr is coming on the show. Uh, and if I can find a way to reach Victor Laval, he's got an open invitation. <laughs> but it, it still doesn't feel like the balance is right. Do you know what I mean? And I wonder, like you said, about the, the opportunities not being there and the, you know, the tours getting shorter and the appearances not being there. Is that what's stopping black voices breaking through to the top tiers of genre fiction? No, I mean, wow, that's a whole podcast uh, unto itself. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> and as someone who who hasn't published a novel in, in several years, though I'm about to publish one next year, which we'll talk about. Uh, don't let me forget mm -hmm. to talk about that. But um, there are a lot of factors behind it. I mean, one of the things that's in the news right now is how major publishers, including mine, Simon & Schuster, a lot of my work, Atria Books uh, was a, a division of Simon & Schuster. A lot of my backlist is there. And, you know, huge contracts go out to public figures and there are a lot of new voices that get overlooked. And this is something industry wide. You know, it's not that it's only Simon & Schuster, but but a lot of new voices do get overlooked or they get under promoted. Right. So the Bunch Center at UCLA just did a study in Hollywood pointing out how much more money inclusive projects make for Hollywood but then comparing that to how they're under budgeted, you know, and, and, you know, there are a lot of people who believed and will say publicly that black people don't write horror. Right. Which is, it's like you knew on faith just wasn't true. And, and, and we are there. We, and we have been there. I mean, in my UCLA class, I, I talk about a W.E.B. Du Bois story. He's a, a historical um, black figure from the U S who was an anti-lynching advocate at the turn of the century, um, one of the co-founders of the NAACP, the uh, oldest civil rights organization. And uh, he wrote a short story called The Comet about a comet that wiped out New York City and the only survivors were a black man and a white woman. And that was in 1920. Uh, and he wrote it to make a point, obviously, about race relations and lynching 
because as soon as they found survivors, that's the like all the social <laughs> inhibitions were erected again. And the whole point of the story was when they were just left amongst themselves as survivors, they were they were human. Isn't that amazing? You know, and since then, uh, we've been publishing here and there. But I, I have to say uh, a lot of things are happening. Part of it is the Black Lives Matter movement. I have to give it a shout out and bringing attention to uh, racialized police violence, it has really sort of shaken up a lot of industries to take a second look at why are all of our meetings all white? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when there's no yeah. black people at our company either. And, you know, like, oh, um, there's that. And, and it's been sort of creeping up. But it came to a head last year after the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and we just got that conviction um, recently. And, I, and I'll, I'll say one more thing. Individual editors like yourself have been taking extra time to sort of look beyond some of the more obvious names. And for a long time in horror, you know, if you weren't Stephen King, nobody wanted to talk to, about you, right? So, so it's not just that it's been only marginalized writers. It was really hard, especially because I would say Stephen King created the publishing horror genre as we know it in literature, you know, because he was such a phenomenon that you, you could build the bookshelves around his name and then Peter Straub could get in and then Clive Barker could get in. And, you know, you've got maybe five horror authors that anybody could name, you know, for a long time or sometimes three to be real, uh, if that sometimes. So Stephen King looms so large that a lot of people um, had, a little bit of trouble getting the recognition, I think, in the genre. And, uh, you know, when I started publishing, there were two tracks. You were on, on the black track or the horror or the uh, really the black track is where I was. So even though I had to educate a lot of readers about horror, like, no, you're not going to go to hell for reading this. No, a demon is not, you know, sometimes there was a lot of uh, unease at times because these were not readers accustomed to reading horror. They were only trusting the bookseller who said, ah, you've got to read My Soul to Keep. This is a good book. Um, so I had to do a lot of education. And then there was the horror side where I got a little bit of traction, but not not that much, you know, because the Black Books boom was driving my sales. So only recently did editors like, you know, John Joseph Adams reach out and start reprinting some of my short stories publishing my short story collection, Ghost Summer, which won a British Fantasy Award. I was so excited. I didn't think I had a chance. I didn't even prepare a speech. <laughs> I was that person who literally thought, why Why am I even on the ballot? I don't even understand. But I'm so, I won that British Fantasy Award. I'm so excited. That has helped me find a lot of readers who had no idea I existed. And then, which I think is probably leading up to one of your next questions, came the phenomenon known as Jordan Peele. Mic drop. Jordan Peele. Cataclysmic. Volcanic. I saw Get Out with my 82-year-old father. He's now, he's now 85, going strong. Me, we, me and my father have always gone to the cinema. It's the thing we do. It's the thing we bond over. Mm. And the thing that blew me away the most about that film is quite how much it spoke to my old man who is from the generation that we all kind of, you know, indulgently and complacently forgive for yeah. their, their internalised bias. Right. 
and I'm very proud to say that that my dad is the most liberal forward thinking octogenarian on the planet, you know, but even he, I thought would kind of, if not struggle with get out, then, you know, miss its nuances, miss the mm. message. And he mm. was just blown away by it. Um, and, and it does feel like get out as, has changed the world in a way, you know, because the conversations are different. But it, it does lead to a question mentioned in Jordan Peele, but not probably not the question you, you think I'm going to ask. Jordan Peele will be an inspiration for a generation of filmmakers. He will be, you know, he will be the urtext for so many filmmakers to come in the next 20 years. Yeah. But when you were writing, when you published The Between in 1995, the, the kind of the end of the paperback horror boom, as a as a, a black writer of horror, did you have anyone to show you the way? <laughs> oh my goodness, no. <laughs> no, I didn't even know about Octavia Butler, the black science fiction writer who was publishing before me. I had not read any of her work. Um that's a that's a very good question because I, I tell my writing students all the time I had to find myself as a writer. I mean, I knew I loved horror. I got a love of horror from my late mother, Patricia Stevens Dew, who was a civil rights activist and was tear gassed in 1960, wore dark glasses her whole adult life indoors after that because of sensitivity to light. So she had this very real scar from her activism, her trauma. And I really believe I never discussed it with her, but I really believe that was what drove her love for horror, that she could leech some of that out, visualize mm -hmm. a monster in a way that was less scary than the real monster, which in, in her case was her country, right? Um, I had that love. I wanted to write it. I had the permission to do whatever I wanted. But by the time I got to the University of Leeds in my early 20s, I was writing white men in contemporary realism with no genre components whatsoever. Because that was the canon I had been exposed to since I was in, you know, middle school all the way up through high school. I mean, I started out as a child writing black girls doing magical things. But by the time I was in my early 20s, I was writing white men doing mundane things, having epiphanies. So never mind, did I not know of any other black horror writers? I didn't even know if I was allowed to be a black horror writer. And obviously, you're going to write your best work if you're writing closest to your heart. And I was so busy hiding from myself in every way that it took like out and out intervention <laughs> for me to finally figure out <laughs> that it was okay to write horror. And I'll tell you briefly what the intervention was. I was a reporter for the Miami Herald before I published. I, I worked there for 10 years and I worked in the features section. I was assigned an interview with the vampire writer, Anne Rice, who was huge. Huge, like she would come to the Miami uh, Book Fair International lines around the corner to to get their books signed. And uh, I hadn't read it yet. I hadn't read Anne Rice yet. I just, I'm big into Stephen King. I had never read Anne Rice, but I read one novel for the interview and I read a lot of research on her like you did on me. And one of the articles was criticizing her for wasting her talents writing about vampires, which was really speaking to this unconscious and then becoming conscious fear I had that if I wrote horror, if by some miracle it was okay to be a black horror writer, <laughs> that I would never have respect as a writer. I had seen it in my college classes when I mentioned loving Stephen King. 
I had seen the glaze over the eyes. Like, you're not allowed to talk about that. And now, of course, he got a National Medal of Arts from President Obama. But at the time, it, the fear of commercial success in uh, writing programs is is a little toxic. But that's a whole different um, conversation. <laughs> but so, so I asked Anne Rice how she responded to criticism that she was wasting her talents writing about vampires. And she just laughed. She said, you know, that used to really bother me. But when you write about horror and the supernatural, you can write about big sweeping themes like life. And she just went on and on and death and love and blah. And my work is taught in colleges, she said. And that was it. Bingo. First door opened. And what really sealed it was reading a book by a, a late um, Black American author named uh, Gloria Naylor called Mama Day, which was mostly realism but had enough metaphysical elements that I could see, oh, she's super well-respected, and she's writing about, like, metaphysics, and it's like, so maybe, and boom, um, I was off to the races. I, I wrote my first novel in nine months. I gave up. Cable, I stopped watching TV, didn't even notice when they shut off my cable for non-payment. <laughs> I stopped rollerblading on South Beach after work, which literally I used to do. Uh, I worked on South Beach. Well, I'm in my 20s, but I, I shut everything down and wrote my first novel in nine months, the minute I had permission. But no, to answer your question, I did not <laughs> have anyone leading the way. And as a result, it took a long time to figure out, I think, what I was supposed to do. Yeah, I can imagine that because I think Stephen King is is obviously there in some of your work. Not all, actually, but some of your work, particularly in in The Good House. Oh, he's a huge influence on me. I will make no bones about it. I, you know, I feel like I learned how to write horror from Stephen King. <laughs> Characters first. Well, I want to ask you about Stephen King. In the the afterword to your collection, Ghost Summer, your husband Steve Barnes. He talks about, it's this phrase that caught my eye, where he says that you combined networking, musical skills, and chutzpah to get King to blurb <laughs> your book. It sounds like there's a story there. Oh my gosh, there is so much a story. And, you know, shout out to Stephen King. I, I, I did pretty much learn how to write horror from reading him from the time my mother gave me this, this uh, I think it was The Shining when I was 16. Um... But I worked, as I said, for the Miami Herald as a reporter. One of the other columnists there is a humorist named Dave Barry. And Dave Barry and Stephen King are super tight friends, right? And I knew this because they played in a band together called the Rock Bottom Remainders. Yeah. And at some point, I had sort of casually written to, to Dave and said, hey, do you think you could send a manuscript? And he was like, that's not going to happen. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he got 100 requests like that yeah. per day, you know. Um, but one day I ran into him in the cafeteria and I had heard that the rock bottom remainders were going to be playing at the Miami book fair. And I said, yeah, wow. I'm so excited about that concert. You know, it would really be my dream to sort of be in like the sort of, uh, understudy, you know, for the rock bottom remainders. I, I play keyboard and he, I wasn't expecting anything out of it. I was just making conversation. But he said, oh, well, you know, Mitch Album is going to be doing vocals during an Elvis number, Jailhouse Rock. Do you do you know Jailhouse Rock? And I was like, yeah. No, I did not know Jailhouse Rock. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so I just, he invited me to come up on stage. And it was, I, I met Stephen King in person. 
I mean, I also met Amy Tan and Ridley Pearson and Mitch Album. So it was this entire like, but, you know, Stephen King was my idol as a writer. Uh, it's fair to say. <laughs> so I was just basically speechless. So happy to meet him. And I gave him a copy of my uh, first novel, The Between. I, 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 I wanted to get a signature, but I figured I might have only one interaction. If I have only one interaction... Is it more important to ask for an autograph or more important to give him the gift of the book? And I decided to give him the book and I signed it to him in case he had any thoughts about not accepting it. It was already signed, <laughs> <laughs> but he was happy to accept it. He made a comment that my author photo looked really severe and, and serious because, you know, this rock band has this whole leather persona you're in leather short shorts and, you know, that whole thing. So my author photo was quite a contrast to the way I was dressed for the concert. <laughs> but it went, the concert went well. I think the engineer turned my sound down. He didn't trust me. I think he turned my sound down a little bit, I, I, I noticed. But uh, other than that, it went great. I gave him the book. And then I, I asked him to blurb my soul to keep. Uh, at, at the time, his uh, address was pretty well publicized through the Horror Writers Association, if you remember. So I just wrote a letter. And he, he I, I, I'll never forget it. I came home from work. There was a letter in my mailbox from Bangor, Maine. And I just knew it was from Stephen King. I held it up to the light. It only looked like it was a two or three line letter. So I was like, damn. Because, <laughs> you know, as a writer, you get, you get pretty good at re uh, spotting a rejection when you see one. <laughs> Yeah. But when I opened it up, it said, Dear Tanana Reeve, if I may, I really enjoyed the between, and I would be happy to read my soul to keep. You're all rock and roll buddy, Steve King. <laughs> and I screamed. And he faxed it to my editor literally the day it was due. And it was much longer than the one that ended up on the jacket. And I have to say, the thing that, that most gratified me is the part that got cut out when he talked about my gift for characterization. Because I'm like, teacher, that's you. I learned that from you. But yeah, characterization, he, he pointed out. And um, boom, that was it. That was how I got my blurb from Stephen King. Uh, I'm sorry, Steve King. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of a story. Yeah, yeah. That is excellent. Yeah, cool. So let's get into your fiction because we've, we've kind of skirted the edges of all this stuff about your books I, I do have some questions to ask because i've read a lot of it recently i read the between years ago uh, and i plan to reread it for this conversation but i ran out of time i'm literally reading like two books a week at the moment um so i, I didn't manage to reread it i'm actually quite relieved because i remember it disturbed me a great deal the between um because mm. I, i've mentioned on this podcast before that i have a particular kind of anxiety around sleep and dreams because I, I have weird waking confusion mm. it's a kind of a soft spot for me psychologically and th that book is about a man who is pursued in his dreams to the point where he doesn't know what's real or not yeah um, I remember it really freaked me out years ago but am I correct in thinking that it's being reissued this year yeah they're reissuing it with a new cover I think a lot of my work is probably going to end up being reissued in the years to come um so, yeah, and that is the book that that came out of my Anne Rice conversation. And the, and the story, the confusion came out of Hurricane Andrew in 1992, which leveled the part of uh, South Florida where I had grown up. My, my home neighborhood was just unrecognizable. It really looked like a bomb had gone off. 
you could get lost because the landmarks were, you know, the trees are stripped down. Luckily, there wasn't a lot of flooding or more people would have died, but the wind damage was horrible. So that whole idea that, you know, you were just here last week and now you don't recognize it is probably the most disconcerting single event of my life, aside from the loss of my mother. But it was just huge. And then a a love affair went wrong. You know, someone I'd had a crush on in college gave me the I love you, but I'm not in love with you speech. So it was being flung out of that world into another world. And that was what gave me the idea of uh, the dream disorder. I'm very lucky. My my poor son, who's 17, does have actual sleep paralysis. Wow. Okay. And night terrors and that kind of thing. And the way he describes it, it's horrible. Um, I don't know that I would have written about it as directly if, if that was something I suffered from. Maybe I would have. But I do tend to write more indirectly about my fears and phobias. So for me, it was more about that idea of waking up somewhere different than it had to do with the sleep part. Yeah. The the drowning part, there's there's a drowning in this story. That was my my real fears. But I will say that I'm actually working on a, a television adaptation. I hate to even say it. Well, first of all, it hasn't been announced, so I won't say where. And secondly, uh, I have been down this road with works many times before. So, of course, I'm always very cautious about trying to give the idea that this is about to show up on anyone's television screen. But having said that, I am working on a pilot for a series based on The Between. Um, And that's something else that's just come in the past couple years than this post-Jordan Peele era. Mm Mm-hmm. Then we come to the the, the Good House, um, mm. which I think that that's the book I knew you for for years before I read it. And is am I right that, that that's the book that gets the most fan love? That's the one. That's that's your book, isn't it? The one that everyone thinks of you in relation to. You know, I think for the hardcore horror fans, it's probably my scariest book in the most concentrated way. So yes. But to the fans who've known me from way back or the people who discover me from other circles, like horror adjacent, but not necessarily big into horror, it's my novel, My Soul to Keep, which is basically a supernatural love story. You know, it's because it's, I think it's accessible for whatever reason. And the character is, Dawid is is very popular. But The Good House, especially I would say in recent years, is the one I see the most horror fans talking about. Okay. It scared the living hell out of me. Um, and I, I don't scare easy. I've said quite a few times on the show recently that books have scared me. And, and I'm not saying it to kind of, you know, to blow smoke up the ass of, of, of the authors. Like, I, I don't lie on this podcast. Like, if I say a book scared me, it scares me. It's happened quite a lot. Maybe it's, maybe it's reading during COVID. I've been more susceptible. But when mm. I was reading uh, The Good House, I, I an, another one of these psychic pressure points me, possession narratives really freak me out. And I developed a really bad stomach ache whilst reading that book. Oh, no. And and people haven't read it yet. It's a book in which a stomach ache is deeply symptomatic of being infested by a particular kind of demon. Uh, And I I had really bad stomach ache for for ages. Like, and I was like, oh, this isn't good. (laughs) Oh, no. It really scared the hell out of me. I have this running theory in my head that the haunted house story, like jazz, is one of the true ongoing American traditions. Sort mm. of, you know, all the way from House of Usher or Seven Gables, and then you Shirley Jackson, and then Stephen King's numerous bad places. Mm-hmm. Then you've got this mad diversion with Daniel Lewski's House of Leaves. And it feels like the good house is an important 
contribution to that tradition, perhaps the first black contribution to that very American tradition. Hmm. Did you set out to write a great American haunted house story? Well, I was always trying to set out to write the great something, (laughs) you know, every book was sort of swinging for it. But I think what happened with The Good House was this uh, very special alchemy, uh, well, unfortunate circumstances, really, because when I first got married, I mean, I was very happy to be married. My husband is Stephen Barnes. He's also my collaborator on scripts. Uh, But we lived in a very small town for six years, and I was from Miami which is a very cosmopolitan and lively city full of people, none of whom were actually born there. It's just like this whole mix of, of the world, uh, the Caribbean, um, South and Central America. So going to the town of Longview, Washington, Washington being one of our least diverse states and Longview probably well within those statistics, you know, it was, you would go days without seeing anybody of color. And in fact, I don't know what the situation is in the UK, but they would use the term colored. When in the United States, that is a very, very outdated term that maybe you would use in the 1950s or 1960s, right? Yeah. So, And they didn't mean anything by it. They just didn't know any better. And so for those cultural reasons, the isolation was shocking. You know, I had grown up in Miami. I literally felt like I had moved to another country (laughs) where I just happened to speak the language. That that was about the only thing that was in common (laughs) with the country I had left. And it it was an adjustment for me. So I finally decided four years in, four years of a six-year commitment until my stepdaughter was 18, because my husband was co-raising his daughter with his ex-wife, I decided to put it all into a book. And by it all, I meant the isolation the scariest story I had ever heard about a demon from a shaman, which to this day, and like you, I'm not, I don't believe either. I got to say, I'm not a believer in it, but I heard this story and I thought if there were demons, that's what a demon would do. That whole thing. In fact, I, I recreated part of the story in the book where someone's just having dinner casually. It's an anecdote within the book. Uh, and says, I have to kill you now, and tries to stab a loved one out of the nowhere. Well, that was part of the real story. (laughs) And the way it concluded was like, holy cow. So I I put that in there. I had a friend who unfortunately had suffered the loss of a son, and she didn't know if it was suicide or an accident. And uh, very, you know, sort of shattered by the experience of, of having to support her through that and attending that funeral. I've been to children's funerals twice. They're the worst. So uh, every bad thing, every evil, horrible, even this, there's a story about, I mean, I don't want to, I won't say who, but there's a story about someone drowning someone in the good house. Even that was just ripped straight out of a headline. There was like a real thing that happened. But it was so much worse than actual life because it happened on Halloween and I couldn't even make it in Halloween in the novel yeah. or it would have felt too on the nose. It was that bad. <laughs> it was like, so uh, every bad, horrible thing that scared me, that frustrated me, that angered me, I poured it all into that book. So maybe that's what people are responding to. There's an authenticity to it because it's pretty much real in terms of like if this demon experience was an actual experience then this is how it would have translated <laughs> into this story and you you touch on um well you don't touch on you you get shovel loads of 
sort of voodoo or, or voodoo. Mm. I'm always really interested in in representations of, of that culture in horror because of how badly they're so often done. You know, like it, it's such a crude motif, the way it's used a lot of the time. It's just all oh, the exotic. Yeah. Whereas you, you, you treat it quite in, in The Good House, this is. Um, your novel, The Good House, you you treat voodoo and voodoo with, with with actual real respect, and it's not purely a horrific thing. How much of that is taken from you know real folkloric traditions in Africa and, and the Caribbean, or is it was it just created? Was it was it you taking it and doing your own thing with it? Oh no! Well, some of it was. Some of it, I literally made up a thing that I don't know if is a thing, <laughs> you know, where you can steal a letter from a god. I don't know if that's a thing. But first of all, thank you for saying that because um, I struggled with it. It's in fact, to be honest, if I were writing today, I'm not sure I would do it. It would feel like appropriation now, you know, because it's not a culture I'm from. It's not a belief system that was uh, organic to me. So. I just remembered after The Between was published, I, I had a conversation with a writer who's like, oh, you know, oh, his name was Kelvin Christopher James. He said, you know, oh, you know, your novel is good. I wish you'd done a little more research. And it kind of stung. It kind of stung. So when I was coming back to it, I said, no one's going to say that to me this time. <laughs> no one is going to say that to me. So I read, like, I have a whole list of uh resources in the author's note that that I, I unfortunately can't think of off the top of my head now because it's been a while, but I read cover to cover. Um, I did not meet with people. That's the one thing I, I wish I had interviewed some people, but I took it from books and I took it from anecdotes. And I have had a couple different actual practitioners, one of Santeria, which is uh, the Cuban you know, version of this these West African belief systems. And, a, and another woman uh, who is also a practitioner of a slightly different variant, both of them, one of them saying, well, I thought for sure you were like a priestess. <laughs> and the other one saying it felt authentic. So it's like, ah, oh, to get that piece right, because you're so right, it's so misused. Uh, Horror Noir talks about that in the documentary to the point where when we were developing this for film with Forrest Whitaker, he wanted to direct a film version of this back in 2007, 2008 couldn't quite get it there. But we had decided at the meeting, or he decided at the meeting to strip out voodoo, that we were going to create a fictitious system. Right. Because voodoo had been so badly treated by Hollywood. And he didn't want to be a part of that, which I totally respect. I I don't think um, this is also in development again. (laughs) I don't think we're going to strip it out. I think it's lean into it. Don't strip it out. Lean into it. Uh, Bring on consultants. Because, you know, if you saw voodoo in Hollywood and only Hollywood, you would wonder why in the world would anyone follow this faith? You know, as much as I love, love, love Wes Craven, the serpent and the rainbow. Oh, God. <laughs> and the depiction of voodoo is like yeah. everything that's wrong with the way Hollywood approaches it. Mm-hmm. It's not a faith. It's a spectacle. It's, it's going back to sort of that early American cinema fear of blackness and the idea that black people who were otherwise powerless from little islands, you know, could have the power to turn you into a zombie, which back then meant like a slave, like strip you of your agency. That was so scary. And and that fed into fears of black power, black political power, black economic power. So I think a lot of that just got reflected in cinema as fear of black monstrosity 
And uh, I'm really glad I did the work to try to get that right. And and if it goes to series, I'll be working hard to make sure we keep getting it right, including that Native American culture piece, which I would like to delve into more as well. Well, that's something I've noticed in your fiction is that you you tell lots of tales, you, you incorporate lots of other minority voices, whether they're Cuban, Native Americans appear quite a lot in your fiction, Hispanic cultures. It, it creates a, a nice collage of an alternative folklore behind this this white monolith mm. reading all your stuff in one go i appreciate the pattern of that mm. but i'm talking about reading all your stuff in one go a little habit of mine is that when i read people's work um, in close proximity to each other i try and look for sort of governing themes and the governing theme if i may presume in a, in a lot of your fiction to me seems to me to be the, the particular black experience of crisis and I, I highlighted um, a, a note from one of your stories in Ghost Summer, actually. Um, it's the story Danger Word, which is, for me, the best story in that, in that entire collection. Mm, thank you. To set the story, it's about a, an old man and his grandson who are living in the, the ruins of a post-pandemic society. And there's a passage in which the old man is reflecting back on the, on the attempts to, to deal with this crisis when it first kicked off and he says quote being white helped they say it didn't but joe davis knew it did always had always would things like that went underground for a time that's all times like these the ugly stuff festers and explodes back topside Mm -hmm. and i actually highlighted that because i thought jesus christ the pandemic has actually proved your words true Mm. And, and it got me thinking about whether it's so kind of a elaborate question now, whether writing crisis, whether personal or societal, from a black perspective, are there differences in approach? Do these systemic problems become like another layer of horror within the horror? And does it get tiresome to continually have to deal with that as a writer of colour? Hmm. There's a lot in that question. Very thoughtful question. Yeah, sorry. It's more of a paragraph, isn't it? You know, I hadn't really thought, I was sitting here trying to guess what you were going to say, my overlying theme, <laughs> what my uh, underlying themes were. Well, that's, just, that's just my perspective. Don't, don't, let, don't take that to the bank. I can't deny that the crisis moment is one that fascinates me, in part because I'm so afraid of it. I'm, so, you know, here during the pandemic, during the political cycle we just went through, uh, I wouldn't have been surprised by anything. People throwing rocks through our windows, trying to break our door down. Guns are everywhere here. And then, you know, you, you come from family history of fleeing in the trunk of a car because neighbors are jealous of your successful business and have accused you of a rape you didn't commit, which was, uh, you know, and it's, and it's very awkward because... Uh, in the era of hashtag believe women, rape accusations were used as a political tool of oppression in the Americans, especially in the American South, but really not just in the South, uh, as an accusation against black men who were accruing power and influence as a way to disrupt uh, family and and uh, survival, basically, right? So that's... M- Speaking to my personal fears, the thing that perhaps drives me to writing horror more than anything is to feel prepared for when the floor drops out. And I think there was a New York Times story that said that people who love horror 
fared better psychologically under the pandemic in the United States. Because kind of, we were, yeah, of course. <laughs> what, what, what do you think? <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? I mean, yeah. uh, I saw a sign where someone said, we, we were promised zombies. But it's, whether it's zombies <laughs> or whatever it is, it's going to be something, right? Yeah. And I write to sort of mentally prepare myself for that because I don't feel all that prepared. I mean, despite all the history I just discussed, I had a very comfortable childhood. I was comfortably middle class in a two-parent home, very well educated, supported in my art. Um, you know, my parents had some conflicts, but really an almost idyllic childhood considering some of the racialized things that that happened um, during that era. So I'm I'm really just trying to write for me first. That's the honest secret. I'm one of those few writers, and I'll even admit it. I listen to my old stuff. I prefer, and I don't read it, but I will listen to it on audio. I will listen to an interpretation of a story on audio because I am writing for me first. I really, really am. And uh, the thing about fear and crisis is that it's universal, which is why I think, with some guidance, horror audiences can be much more welcoming of the voices of difference because we're sick of seeing the same stuff over and over again. I watched the ring for the first time on a very, very old VHS tape that three generations. We couldn't even read the subtitles. I had to watch the movie in Japanese and I couldn't turn away from it. We're all 10 year old kids who want to hear a ghost story and we're not going to be entertained by the same story again and again and again. And um, the, some of my characters are facing racism. Some of my characters are facing the monster within themselves. Some of my characters are just trying to survive the day and don't even think about their color the whole time because they really are just trying to survive the day. <laughs> and um, I really do think that through the specific, you get to the universal. I would not be writing stories that are as powerful as they are if I were still that 23-year-old who thought I needed to write white characters. Maybe I would have made more money faster if I was pretending to be someone else, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe my work would have suffered because I wasn't writing about myself and my own experiences. I was trying to guess what it felt like to be this character at every turn rather than just writing the truth of my experiences. That's a beautiful answer. It's really interesting you say actually about you know horror writers want horror, horror readers wanting something new because you're completely right. One of the things I've loved about reading um, recent books is is the the inclusion of like new folklore. So Stephen mm-hmm. Graham Jones is the only good Indians has this. I don't know if you've read it or not, but it has this phenomenal. Oh my gosh, it's so it's my recommendation. It's so good. I love his writing. And the elk-headed woman is like should be straight into the pantheon of horror horror monsters for all time. I'm I'm going mm-hmm. to read Violet Castro's Queen of the Chicadas, which similarly um, talks about mm-hmm. a, a new Mexican folklore. We, we need this new blood in horror to shake up what's scary. But speaking about something new, what's happening with the reformatory? I'm assuming that is the new book that we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Assume I know nothing. What's the situation with the reformatory? Seven years, baby. It took me seven years to write this novel. And shortly after my mother died, <clears throat> I'll try to tell the short version. Shortly after my mother passed away in 2012, we heard from the Florida Attorney General's office 
that my mother had um, a relative who had died on the grounds of a reformatory, uh, basically a juvenile prison in Mariana, Florida, back in 1937. And basically asking for the family permission to begin exhuming remains so they could get an idea of how many children were buried. Like literally, this reformatory had a cemetery on its own grounds because so many kids (laughs) were dying there. Uh, So between about 1900, and I forget when they finally shut this hellhole down, but it was uh, almost 100 years. It had a good run. Uh, It might have been more than 100 years, actually. Um, And it was beset with complaints of abuse, children being chained. I mean, sometimes you were sent there just for being an orphan. You weren't even necessarily doing anything. And then if you were doing something, you're still a child. But these children were whipped, the skin whipped off their backs. So... I, I learned more about it. There were some organizers who were working to bring more attention to it. I attended meetings. We attended the first digging. My son, who was the nine, helped actually dig on the grounds. It was a pretty amazing day. They found the remains of my great uncle, Robert Stevens, and he was reburied. But I just wanted to, I wanted to write about it somehow. I, this was one of those situations where I just wanted to sort of change history. I have a story like that in my collection. It's just, this is a family story. I wish it gone differently. You know, and without saying too much about it, I decided that rather than trying to write nonfiction, because there were survivors already doing that. And to be frank, I don't really like writing nonfiction. (laughs) So instead of writing nonfiction, I decided to write a novel and pay tribute to this, this young man's experience there, but with some differences. And I made it a haunted reformatory. And so the bottom line is that it's sort of about the uneasy frenemyship, like they're friends, but they're enemies, <laughs> frenemyship between this boy and a haint uh, to to try to get the best of this sociopathic warden. And and the haint, will have, the promise is that he'll help him escape. So they have to sort of join forces, even though they're very different. They have very different experiences. <laughs> they're, you know, haints are not reliable uh, friends in many ways. Uh, but aside from all that, and, and that's the story is just to tr- trying to get out, trying to, I mean, this warden is so sociopathic that he's trapping Haynes. <laughs> it's not enough. He's killed them once. <laughs> he's trapping them once they're killed. So it's just, um, and I used that, I used horror as a way to kind of blunt the violence because I didn't want to write a novel about a bunch of kids being beaten and sexually assaulted, although that's basically what was happening. So the haints are to honor that this violence has taken place, but the audience does not have to experience it firsthand for the most part, and the author does not have to experience it firsthand, but it still took me seven years to write because it was so painful. It's set in 1950. So is it done? It's done, and it's. I have a few edits coming my way, I'm told. There will be an announcement soon, so I won't get in the way of the official announcement. I've just sold it. An editor I'm very excited to be working with, and, and uh, yeah, I wish I could say more, but, but hopefully it will be out by next fall. That's fine. Watch this space, people. That touches all my buttons, because I love prison stories. I love coming-of-age stories. I love historical horror, so... Oh, I well, am, this is um, for you then. <laughs> I am fully in for that one. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That That's going to be great. So to close the conversation, as I always do, my favourite question, what truly scares you? 
<sighs> you know, I, I have this uh, lingering fear of mortality from childhood. And it's a tough one to shake because <laughs> it just gets worse as you get older, <laughs> unless you manage it. Um, and I do. I manage it. But it, that, mortality, I've, I've never been a victim of violence. I think I fear violence. Now that I'm a mother, I have a 17-year-old son. Uh, every time he's out of the house, I'm anxious. So that's hard. But yeah, it's those just sort of normal everyday things. I, I just fear sort of the inevitability of uh, diminishment of some kind and and saying goodbye to all this is all the complaints I have. I really love life. Well, it sounds like quite a good one. So long may it continue. <laughs> Everything I write is sort of sorting through that and from different directions too. Well, I mean, that is, that is as ever, quite, that's quite a good place to end, I suppose, on a, on a downbeat note. <laughs> but yeah, all I can say to Nara Reeve is thank you so very much for joining me on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I can't wait for the reformatory to hit the show so I can read it and I wish you all the best with it. But yeah, to Nara Reeve do, thank you very much for talking scared. Thank you very much. This was fun. Just so you know, I'm recording this intro and outro late at night because I can't sleep. My wife is sleeping in the room directly below me, so I'm speaking quietly. If this sounds a little like a late night radio show, you'd pick up on an empty highway somewhere out in the desert when morning and home are a long way away. Well, great. Back to my conversation with Tanara Reeve. She's a deeply impressive lady. Her answers, as you heard, were eloquent and thorough. And I only hope that's not because she's been asked them countless times before. All the way through our conversation, I was worried that I was asking too many questions that placed Tanara Reeves' blackness at the core. The last thing I wanted to do was reduce her or confine her as an author of colour. Regardless of any social context, her books are brilliant in their own right. The Good House is genuinely frightening. Far more so than Stephen King, who is probably her closest writer in style and approach. I haven't said it's better than King, you know, you know what I think about King, but it's definitely scarier than most of his novels. But identity is key to Tanara Reeve's work. As you heard, she injects such personal experience into her writing that to ignore who she is would be ludicrous. And and anyway, I, I think she liked teaching an oblivious white bloke a thing or two as well. If you haven't read any of Tanana Reeve's work, then I wholeheartedly recommend picking up The Between, The Good House, and most of all, Ghost Summer. I read the last two in a week at breakneck pace, and it was it was a good, good week. I also cannot wait to read The Reformatory. I mean, as I said to her, it just ticks all my boxes, so I'm going to try and get her back on the show to discuss that and to tell us more about this real family history that led to it. I'd also recommend watching the documentary that she helped make, Horror Noir. It's on Shudder. It's a clear, concise and very fun walkthrough of black horror over the last five or six decades. Actually, when I think about it, it goes all the way back to the birth of American cinema with the birth of a nation. Um, It's opened my eyes to a lot of films I was only peripherally aware of. So yeah, definitely check out Horror Noir on Shudder. You'll also see why my wife said that Tanara Reeves seemed like the sweetest person ever. 
sorry for not asking what the scary story about the demon was. Listening back to our conversation, it seems obvious that I should have said, tell me the story the shaman told you. But at the time, after she'd gone into some quite deep personal details about her friend who lost a child and, and various other traumas, it seemed quite crass to then go, oh, but tell us about that demon. <laughs> um, yeah, so sorry about that. If you do want to hear more of our conversation, though, including a great anecdote about Jordan Peele and what Tanana Reeve thinks of the new movie Antebellum that everyone is trashing, um, and also what she thought of her time living in Yorkshire, then there'll be some bonus content dropping on Patreon this week. And that will go straight to subscribers' device like normal. And speaking of Patreon, we've had new subscribers who have earned their shout-out. We can add Sheena Perez, Donald Wright and Johnny Wright to the list of people who love the show enough to support it. Thanks guys, welcome to the family. My gratitude is as deep and endless as a Lovecraftian sky. If anyone else wants to support the show, you can get a couple of extra episodes every month, plus random minisodes and musings whenever I drop them. Also, if you want to suggest questions for the upcoming authors, then you can do that too. I'm currently open to questions for Max Brooks, author of World War Z and the new Devolution, his Bigfoot horror novel, and also Zakiah Delilah Harris, author of The Other Black Girl, which I'm currently reading, and my god, it is brilliant. Um, quite fitting to this show, actually, because it basically reads like, and this is not my words, but they're very true, Get Out meets The Devil Wears Prada. It's it's compelling stuff. So if you've read it, if you're interested, and you're a patron, find me some questions for, for Zakiah. You can find the Patreon at, funnily enough, patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, and it's in the show notes. As well as that, come find me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod. I did a thank you video recently as we are nearing a thousand followers. That video shows off both my mad hair and my dog. Both are equally fluffy. One's cuter than the other. Oh, and you can email me direct at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram, which, which is growing at talking underscore scared underscore pod. Come find me. I love it. Someone this week, Stephanie, um, the host of Books in the Freezer pod, suggested I set up a TikTok. But quite frankly, I think it would make my head explode. So, yeah, we'll see. Next week, it's the man himself, Josh Malaman, talking about Goblin, his novel of six novellas, all about a mad small town and the dark deeds that are done there. Until then, though, hug your family when you can, support local bookshops, think about your terminology, and if you get a stomachache, call a priest. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>